Section 16 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. If ever a man was made to respond to this Paris of 1830, it was Franz Liszt. Heroic virtuosity was a solid half of its credo. Victor Hugo, as a virtuoso of language, must be placed beside the greatest writers of all time. Homer, Shakespeare, Dante, and whom else? No less can be said for Liszt in regard to the piano. He was born in 1811 in Reading, Hungary. He is commonly supposed to be partly Hungarian in blood, although German biographers deny this, asserting that the name originally had the common German form of Liszt. Almost before he could walk, he was at the piano. At the age of nine, he appeared in public. And at the age of twelve, he was a pianist of international reputation. How such virtuosity came to be, no one can explain. Most things in music can be traced in some degree to their causes. But in such a case as this, the miracle can be explained neither by his instruction, nor by his parentage, nor by any external conditions. It is one of the things that must be set down as a pure gift of heaven. Prominent noblemen guaranteed his further education, and after a few months of study in Vienna, under Czerny and Salieri, he and his father went to Paris, which was to be the center of his life for some twenty years. He was the sensation of polite Paris within a few months after his arrival, and he presently had pupils of noble blood at outrageous prices. Two years after his arrival, that is, when he was fourteen, a one-act operetta of his, Don Sanche, was performed at the Académie Royale. Two years later his father died and he was thrown on his own resources as a teacher and concert pianist. Then in 1830 he fell sick following an unhappy love affair, and his life was despaired of until, in the words of his mother, he was cured by the sound of the cannon. How did the Paris of 1830, and particularly the temper of Parisian life, affect Liszt? Monsieur Mignet, he said, teach me all of French literature. Here's a new thing in music, a musician who dares take all knowledge to be his province. He writes about this time. For two weeks my mind and my fingers have been working like two of the damned. Homer, the Bible, Plato, Locke, Byron, Hugo, Lamartine, Chateaubriand, Beethoven, Bach, Hümmel, Mozart, Weber are about me. I study them, meditate them, devour them furiously. He conceived a huge admiration for Hugo's Martin de Lorme and Schiller's Wilhelm Tell. Be sure, too, that he was busy reading the artistic theories of the Romanticists and translating them into musical terms. The Revolution of 1830 had immediate concrete results in his music. He sketched a revolutionary symphony, part of which became incorporated into his symphonic poem, Héroïdes Funèbres. He made a brilliant arrangement of the Marseillaise and wrote the first number of his Years of Pilgrimage, on the insurrection of the workmen at Lyon. The early manifestations of modern socialistic theory were then in the making, in the cult of Saint-Simon, and Liszt was drawn to them. 
For many years, it was supposed that he was actually a member of the order, though he later denied this. The Saint-Simonians had a concrete scheme of communistic society and a sort of religious metaphysic. This latter, if not the former, impressed Liszt deeply, especially because of the place given to art as expressing the ideal toward which the people, the whole people, would strive. But a still stronger influence over Liszt was that of the revolutionary abbé Lamennais. Lamennais was a devout Catholic, but like many of the priesthood during the First Revolution, he was also an ardent Democrat. He took it as self-evident that religion was for all men, that God is no respecter of persons. He was pained by the role of the Catholic Church in the French Revolution, its continual siding with the ministers of despotism, its readiness to give its blessing and its huge moral influence to any reactionary government which would offer it material enrichment. He felt it was necessary, no less in the interest of the Church than of the people, that the Catholic Church should be the defender of democracy against reactionary princes. He was doing precisely what such men as G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc are trying to do in England today. His influence in Paris was great, and he became the rallying point for the Liberal Party in the Church. Perhaps if his counsel had prevailed, the Church would not have become, in the people's minds, the enemy of all their liberties, and would have retained its temporal possessions in the war for Italian unity forty years later. Liszt had always been a Catholic, and in his earlier youth had been prevented from taking holy orders only by his father's express command. Now he found Lemonet's philosophy meet to his soul, and Lemonet saw in him the great artist who was to exemplify to the world his philosophy of art. In 1834, Liszt published in the Gazette Musicale de Paris an essay embodying his social philosophy of art. Several points in this manifesto are of importance in indicating what four years of revolutionary Paris had made of Liszt the artist. Though primarily a virtuoso, Liszt had been raised above the mere vain delight of exciting admiration in the crowd. He had made up his mind to become a creative artist with all of his powers. He had asserted the artist's right to do his own thinking, to be a man in any way he saw fit. He had accepted as gospel the romanticist creed that rules must be broken whenever artistic expression demands it, and had imbibed to the full the literary and romantic imagery of the school. He had linked up his virtuoso sense of the crowd with the only thing that could redeem it and make it an art, the human being's sense of democracy. And he had outlined with great accuracy, so far as his form of speech allowed, the nature of the music which he was later to compose. We can nowhere find a better description of the music of Liszt at its best than Liszt's own description of the future humanitarian music, which partakes in the largest possible proportions of the characteristics of both the theater and the church, dramatic and holy, splendid and simple, solemn and serious, fiery, stormy, and calm. In this democracy, Liszt the virtuoso and Liszt the Catholic find at last their synthesis. How many purely musical influences operated upon Liszt in those years, it is hard to say. 
We know that he felt the message of Meyerbeer and Rossini, such as it was, and raised it to its noblest form in his symphonic poems, the message of magnificence and high romance. But it is fair to say also that he appreciated at its true value every sort of music that came within his range of vision, Schubert's songs, Chopin's exquisite piano traceries, Beethoven's symphonies, and the fashionable Italian operas of the day. He arranged an astonishing number and variety of works for the piano, catching with wizard-like certainty the essential beauties of each. But probably the most profound musical influence was that of Berlioz, who seemed the very incarnation of the spirit of 1830. Berlioz's partial freeing of the symphonic form, his radical harmony, and most of all his use of the idée fixe, or representative melody, which Liszt later developed in his symphonic poems, powerfully impressed Liszt and came to full fruit ten years later. One more influence must be recorded for Liszt's early Parisian years. It was that of Paganini, who made his first appearance at the capital in 1831. Here was the virtuoso pure and simple. He excited Liszt's highest admiration and stimulated him to do for the piano what Paganini had done for the violin. In 1826, Liszt had published his first Etudes, showing all that was most characteristic in his piano technique at that time. After Paganini had stormed Paris, he arranged some of the violinist's Etudes for the piano, and the advance in piano technique shown between these and the earlier studies is marked. But Liszt had by this time thought too much and too deeply ever to believe that the technical was the whole or even the most important part of an artist. He appreciates the value of Paganini and the place of technical virtuosity in art, but he writes, The form should not sound, but the spirit speak. Then only does the virtuoso become the high priest of art, in whose mouth dead letters assume life and meaning, and whose lips reveal the secrets of art to the sons of men. Finally, note that, amid all this dogma and cocksureness, Liszt understood with true humility that he was not expressing ultimate truth, that he spoke for art in a transition stage, and was the artistic expression of a transitional culture. You accuse me, he said of the poet Heine, of being immature and unstable in my ideas, and as a proof, you enumerate the many causes which, according to you, I have embraced with ardor. But this accusation which you bring against me alone, shouldn't it, in justice, be brought against the whole generation? Are we not unstable in our particular situation between a past which we reject and a future which we do not yet understand? Thus, revolutionary Paris had made of Liszt a conscious instrument in the transition of music. For some ten years Liszt remained the concert pianist. His concert tours took him all over Europe, like a wandering gypsy. He even dreamed of coming to America. In 1840 he went to Hungary and visited his birthplace. He rode in a coach, thus fulfilling in the minds of the villagers the prophecy of an old gypsy in his youth that he should return in a glass carriage. In his book, The Gypsies and Their Music, he gives a highly colored and delightful account of how he was received by the gypsies, how he spent a night in their camp, and how he was accompanied on his way by them and serenaded until he was out of sight. The trip made a lasting impression on his mind. 
He had heard once more the gypsy tunes which had so thrilled him in his earliest childhood, and the Hungarian rhapsodies were the result. In 1833, in Paris, he was introduced to the Countess d'Agoult, and between the two there sprang up a violent attachment. They lived together for some ten years, concerning which Liszt's biographer, Chantavoine, says bluntly, the first was the happiest. They had three children, one of them the wife of the French statesman, Émile Olivier, and another the wife of von Bülow, and later of Richard Wagner. Eventually they separated. In 1842, Liszt was invited by the Grand Duke of Weimar to conduct a series of concerts each year in the city of Goethe and Schiller. Soon afterward, he became director of the court theatre. He gave to Weimar ten years of brilliant eminence, performing, among other works, Wagner's Tannhäuser, Lohengrin, and Flying Dutchman, Berlioz's Benvenuto Cellini, Schumann's Genoveva and his scenes from Manfred, Schubert's Alfonso und Estrella, and Cornelius' The Barber of Baghdad. The last work, an attempt to apply Wagnerian principles to comic opera, was received with extreme coldness, and Liszt, in disgust, gave up his position, leaving Weimar in 1861. But during these years he had composed many of the most important of his works. From this time until his death at Bayreuth in 1886, he divided his life between Budapest, Weimar, and Rome. In the Eternal City, the religious nature of the man came to full expression, and he studied the lore of the Church like a loyal Catholic, being granted the honorary title of Abbe. The revolutionist of 1834 had become the religious mystic. Rome and the magnificent traditions of the Church filled his imagination. Liszt's compositions may be roughly divided into three periods. First, the piano period, extending from 1826 to 1842. Second, the orchestral period from 1842 to 1860, mostly during his residence at Weimar. And third, his choral period, from which date his religious works. The nature of these compositions and their contribution to the development of music will be discussed in succeeding chapters. Here we need only recall a few of their chief characteristics. Of his 1,200 compositions, some 700 are original and the others mostly piano transcriptions of orchestral and operatic works of all sorts. Certainly he wrote too much, and not a little of his work must be set down as trash, or near it. But some of it is of the highest musical quality and was of the greatest importance in musical development. The most typical of modern musical forms, the symphonic poem, is due solely to him. He formulated the theory of it and gave it brilliant exemplification. His mastery of piano technique is, of course, unequaled. He made the piano, on the one hand, a small orchestra, and on the other, an individual voice. While he by no means developed all the possibilities of the instrument, Chopin and Schumann contributed more that was of musical value. He extended its range, its avoir du poil, one might almost say, as no other musician has done. His piano transcriptions, though somewhat distrusted nowadays, greatly increased the popularity of the instrument, and in some cases were the chief means of spreading the reputations of certain composers. 
His use of the orchestra was hardly less masterful than that of Berlioz and Wagner. In particular, he gave full importance to the individuality of instruments and emphasized the sensuous qualities of their tone. More, perhaps, than any other composer, he affected the union of pure music with a poetical or pictorial idea. His use of chromatic harmony was at times as daring as that of Berlioz and antedated that of Wagner, who borrowed richly from him. Only his religious music, among his great works, must be accounted comparatively a failure. He had great hopes, when he went to Rome, of becoming the palestrina of the modern church. But the church would have none of his theatrical religious music, while the public has been little more hospitable. Intimate biographies of Liszt have succeeded in staining the brilliant colors of the Liszt myth, but on the whole, no composer who gained a prodigious reputation during his lifetime has lived up to it better, so to speak, after his death. As an unrivaled concert pianist, the one conqueror who never suffered a defeat, he might have become vain and jealous. There is hardly a trace of vanity or jealousy in his nature. His appreciation of other composers was always generous and remarkably just. No amount of difference in school or aim could ever obscure in his eyes the real worth of a man. Wagner, Berlioz, and a host of others owed much of their reputation to him. His life at Weimar was one continued crusade on behalf of little-known geniuses. His financial generosity was very great. Though the income from his concerts was huge, he never, after 1847, gave a recital for his own benefit. In our more matter-of-fact age, much of his musical and verbal rhetoric sounds empty. But through it all, the intellectuality and sincerity of the man are unmistakable. On the whole, it is hardly possible to name another composer who possessed at once such a broad culture, such a consistent idealism, and such a high integrity. End of section 5. Section 6. In Hector Berlioz, born 1803 at Côté-Sandré-Isère, we have one of those few men who is not to be explained by any amount of examination of sources. Only to a small extent was he specifically determined by his environment. He is unique in his time and in musical history. He, again, is to be explained only as a gift of heaven, or of the devil, as his contemporaries thought. In a general way, however, he is very brilliantly to be explained by the Paris of 1830. The external tumult, the breaking of rules, the assertion of individuality all worked upon his sensitive spirit and dominated his creative genius. He was at bottom a childlike, affectionate man, demanding at every moment in his life to love and be loved, as Romain Roland says. In Renaissance Florence, we may imagine he might have been a Fra Angelico, or at least no more bumptious than a Filippo Lippi. It was because he was so delicately sensitive that he became, in the Paris of 1830, a violent revolutionist. His father was a provincial physician, and like so many other fathers in artistic history, seemed to the end of his days ashamed of the fact that he had a genius for a son. The boy imbibed his first music among the amateurs of his town. 
He went to Paris to study medicine because his father would provide him funds for nothing else. He loyally studied his science for a while, but nothing could keep him out of music. Without his father's consent or even knowledge, he entered the conservatory, where he remained at sword's points with the director, Cherubini, who cuts a ridiculous figure in his memoirs. By hook and crook, and by the generosity of creditors, he managed to live on and get his musical education. His father became partially reconciled when he realized there was nothing else to do. But how Berlioz took to heart the lawlessness of the Romantic school! Nothing that was, was right. All that is most typically Gallic, clearness, economy, control, is absent in his youthful work. Ah, me, says he in his memoirs, what was the good God thinking of when he dropped me down in this pleasant land of France? The events of his career are not very significant. He had a wild time of shocking people. He organized concerts of his own work chiefly by borrowing money. After two failures, he won the Prix de Rome and hardly reached Italy when he started to leave it on a picaresque errand of sentimental revenge. He fell in love with an English actress, Henriette Smithson, married her when she was passé and in debt, and eventually treated her rather shamefully. He gave concerts of his works in France, Germany, England, Russia. He was made curator of the conservatory library, he was made an officer of the Legion of Honor. He wrote musical articles for the papers. He took life very much to heart. And from time to time, he wrote musical works, very few of them anything less than masterpieces. That is all. The details of his life make entertaining reading. Very little is significant beyond an understanding of his personal character. He was called the genius without talent. Romain Roland comes closer when he says, Berlioz is the most extreme combination of power of genius with weakness of character. His power of discovering orchestral timbres is only equaled by his power of making enemies. There is no villainy recorded of his life. There are any number of mean things and any number of wild irrational things. His artistic sincerity is unquestioned, but it is mingled with any amount of the bad boy's delight in shocking others. Like Schumann, but in his own manner, he made himself a crusader against the Philistines. Of the unhappiness of his life, it is quite sufficient to say that it was his own fault. His creed was the subjective, sentimental creed of the Romanticists. Sensible people, he exclaims, cannot understand this intensity of being, this actual joy in existing, in dragging from life the uttermost it has to give in height and depth. He was haunted, too, by the Romanticist's passion for bigness. His ideal orchestra, he tells us in his work on instrumentation, consists of 467 instruments, 160 violins, 30 harps, 8 pairs of kettle drums, 12 bassoons, 16 horns, and other instruments in similar abundance. His great importance in the history of music is, of course, his development of the orchestra. No one else has ever observed orchestral possibilities so keenly and used them so surely. His musical ideas, as played on the piano, may sound banal, but when they are heard in the orchestra they become pure magic. He never was a pianist. 
His virtuosity as a performer was lavished on the flute and guitar. For this reason, perhaps, his orchestral writing is the least pianistic, the most inherently contrapuntal of any of the period. He was a pioneer in freeing instrumental music from the dominance of traditional forms. Forms may be always necessary, but the raison d'être, as Berlioz insisted, should be expressive and not traditional. Berlioz was the first great exponent of program music. Liszt owes an immense amount to him. He was also the first to use in a thoroughgoing way the leitmotif, or the idée fixe, as he called it. Not that he developed the theory of the dramatic use of the leitmotif as Wagner did, but he made extensive use of the melody expressive of a particular idea or personage. His output was limited both in range and in quantity, but there are few composers who have had a higher average of excellence throughout their work, always on the understanding that you like his subject matter. The hearer who does not may intellectually admit his technical mastery of the orchestra, but he will feel that the composer is sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. End of section 16